Welcome to our Spiritual Resilience Podcast with Reverend Rich Taffel, a transformative leader and executive coach in areas of public policy, social change, and spiritual entrepreneurship. We understand that today's life and social challenges require a more holistic approach, including spiritual tools, thoughtful dialogue, and of course, community building. Join us in the conversation. Today, I'm going to speak about Emanuel Swedenborg and the church that's based on his name and see what at least I think the future of that church might be. I want to thank Ross Capon for requesting this topic. Uh, Ross's mom actually worshiped in this church and his uh, father, I believe, was the organist at the Newtonville Church in Massachusetts. And um, a relation, I think his cousin was the past president of the entire denomination at one point. Um, he can correct me and, and tell me exactly who that was. So he may have something to teach me about this topic. Uh, and many of you might know more about it than I do, but I'm going to share a little bit about who Swedenborg was, what's the church and what I see the future as. And I look forward to your questions. So let me just start by saying there's entire books on each of these three topics. And I'm gonna do my best to give you a very concise overview in the short time we have together. And then you can ask me questions in the dialogue time. So let's start with Emanuel Swedenborg. Just his dates are he's born 1688, died 1772, son of a Lutheran bishop, named, last name Swedberg. Uh, Swedberg, his, he, in his youth, he, the family was ennobled and they became Swedenborg. And his, he comes from a family with wealthy mine owners in his ancestry. So as a boy, he was very precocious. And as a young man, he traveled throughout Europe. And uh, he was basically a child prodigy. He studied some of the most brilliant minds in the world at that time in Europe. And he sought to go instead of into the religious path like his father, who was a bishop in the Lutheran church, he was going to be a scientist. He was very respected. The king of Sweden appointed him to be on an advisor to the board of mines, which in those days, if you can imagine the mining industry, that was everything for Sweden. So to be an advisor there was quite uh, an appointment. He also served in the Swedish parliament. So he became quite famous for a scientific research and was known as a scientist. His inventions were on the cutting edge. His plans for a flying machine hang today in the Smithsonian Institute as one of the first drawings of a, a flying machine that could work. He designed a submarine before that concept existed. Uh, I believe during war, uh, he helped the Swedes uh, move their ships overland with machines that he created to carry boats across land. And in his ranks, depending on what list you look at, but I saw one where he's listed as one of the, the 18th top geniuses of all, of all time. Um, super smart guy, quite brilliant. Um, interestingly, he turned down a teaching job because I, one of the reasons was he stuttered. Uh, one of the areas that he worked on was in the uh, plant era. He studied plants, he studied the human body, the anatomy of the body. He became quite curious as a Renaissance man of, if there's a soul, then it needs to be in the body. So where is it? And he hypothesized that the soul rested in the head and he spent many years studying uh, the brain. Um, he had love interest with women, but he never married. 
At 53 years old, he began having pretty dramatic mystical experiences, mainly through dreams. And uh, three years later from that, um, at Easter, he had a supernatural experience where he said he was visited by Jesus, who explained that there was an evolution taking place in the world, a new spiritual understanding would be taking place and that he would be, uh, need to be a scribe for a lot of what was going to happen. And so for the next 28 years of his life, he experiences mystical visions. He views heaven and hell and a world of spirits. He writes it down like a scientist. Um, and he gains a reputation while he was alive as a psychic. He had uh, visitors coming to him asking for information for people who had passed. And um, he actually predicted the date of his own death many years later. Uh, interestingly, he published all of his works anonymously and at his own expense. So he wasn't looking for fame or fortune. Uh, but when, when he was discovered uh, that he was the publisher, he started later publishing things with his name. Uh, let's see. So there were some people who read his works in Sweden and Germany, particularly early on, and they faced uh, stiff opposition from the Lutheran church and they found his writings very heretical, uh, even leading to a heresy trial for some of his supporters in Sweden. Um, he himself was protected largely due to his connections with the royal family. He eventually, for freedom purposes, moved to London, to England, where he lived and published more freely, and that's where he died. Um, his body was buried there. Uh, there's a story that um, someone actually stole his skull. He was, uh, they thought there was power in the skull, um, and it was later returned. The body was eventually uh, buried in London and uh, eventually moved to Sweden. So his readings continue to be shared among spiritual seekers. Uh, religious leaders at the time um, were not so enamored with Swedenborg, and I'll explain why in a bit, but he was critical of the Christian church. And so that doesn't win you any friends. And so many would say he was a brilliant scientist, but he lost his mind uh, later. And so that's what really happened. He never created a church. Um, and that's, and I'll get into that more. So that's as brief uh, and a summary of his biography I can give, but let's get into what he taught. Um, and I'm gonna focus on the things that I think are more radical or different uh, for the reason that, uh, to show a contrast with white might be uh, more, more traditional. So probably the most radical teaching that he, that he had was his view about life after death. And he basically said, we, we start living on this sphere in, in heaven or hell, depending on what we love most. And the insight that he had that veered most, I think from Christian religion was that he did believe, though he, he believed Jesus was God on earth, he said that all faith paths are good and that anyone who's living a life of faith and loving their neighbor are following Christ, regardless whether they call themselves Christians. But he also said, and this is where he got in trouble, that people who call themselves Christians, but who do not live a life of love are not bound for heaven, that they're, they're, uh, if they're uh, wrapped up in selfishness. So in other words, it didn't matter so much what you said, it really mattered what you did. One of the views of his time was that unbaptized babies went to hell and he argued against that. I think that's become more common today, but at the time that was very controversial. Uh, he criticized the Protestant church and the Protestant um, faith, the religions mainly on saying that they emphasized that you were saved by your words and not by your act, that your actions were, were much less important. And he stressed that you had to have both. He also challenged the Roman Catholic Church and uh, was critical of it for being focused on earthly power. Um, 
And so what he saw in his teachings was that a new church, a new evolution of Christianity, of spirituality was coming into the world. And he believed that, uh, that the way Jesus is described in Revelations as coming back into the world, that this was what that meant, that it meant Jesus isn't physically coming, but he's coming in a spiritual understanding that will enter into humanity over a long period of time. Um, he believed uh, deeply in the Bible and wrote a lot about the Bible. Most of his writing is about the Bible. It's a very holy book. Uh, much of it is not meant to be taken literally. Uh, there is a deeper spiritual meaning to scripture that could be learned. And the deeper meaning, uh, which is called correspondences, worked throughout the Bible. And yeah, though he did not find that deeper meaning in the letters of Paul, for example, in the New Testament. Okay. He published um, 18 volumes, uh, theological volumes, but the most famous is Heaven and a Hell. That's the one that most people read. It was very popular. It's a description of what happens when you pass. And uh, much of what he has described has been now very, is very common among people who study near-death experience. Uh, he taught that life after death was a continuation of physical life, that your soul is eternal. Um, you are what you love, and you'll spend eternity with communities that share your love, um, and that we choose heaven or hell, that no one is condemned to hell. God doesn't condemn anyone to hell. People choose hellish communities in the next life. Some of the radical ideas of his time, that you'll recognize a lot of these from various sermons, but one was that he said Africans held a very special spiritual connection with God among all races. That was extremely controversial for a white European at that time. Um, he also criticized eating meat. In one place that I said it was profane and that the earliest people who followed the Lord did not eat meat. He did, supposedly didn't eat meat. That's, some people say he did, some people say he didn't. Um, and maybe the most controversial of all of his beliefs was that when he travels to the other side, he sees people from other galaxies, planets. And he thought this was very, uh, wasn't surprised by this. And he said, uh, what would it be to God who is infinite and to whom thousands and there's tens of thousands of planets and, and none of them that have inhabitants, you know, that, that didn't make any sense. So that was, a, maybe that will be proven to be a very big prophecy or a, a strange prediction. Um, he, when he spoke about God as love and truth, he wrote that God is really never angry. He never condemns us, nor uses fear. He's always working through love to lead us to, to the right life, which is a life of loving the neighbor, and that uh, Christ had to come into the world to steer humanity back toward the good of loving each other. Uh, he predicted that there would be a continual spiritual evolution taking place in the, in the world, and that uh, over the next generations, and he dies in 1772, there would be a much greater freedom that people would experience. And he also said that uh, there would be a period of chaos as the old Christian church in a way died out and a new church was born. So that's kind of the summary of maybe some of the most divergent teachings of the Swedenborgian that he, he brought in. And you can see why that would be controversial for a lot of churches, particularly the idea that he said, he saw uh, Jews, Muslims, other faiths in heaven. He also saw famous, somewhat famous uh, Christian leaders in hellish communities. Um, so that, that, didn't, that, that, that uh, by far and away, I think, would be the most controversial thing of the time. So um, Ross also asked, okay, so what about the Swedenborgian church? You know, what is it? What's its future? So let me, let me jump into that now. 
Uh, people are very surprised to learn that Swedenborg never started a church. Um, at the time of his death, there were probably less than 15 people in the world who would say they were followers of his. And I, I mentioned there a few followers in Sweden that, that is ex existed there actually faced a heresy trial. So it was very, uh, there was a chill put on people uh, reading Swedenborg, but it traveled around, his books traveled all over the world. Um, as Eleanor has shared with us in, in presentations uh, to India, uh, to Australia, to the United States, uh, to Africa, and I'll talk more about that. But it really, the, 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 read it, the, the books really did travel all over the world. But there was not a plan by Swedenborg for a church. The phrase Swedenborgianism, as best I can tell, was originally used by people criticizing him. And they called his followers Swedenborgians. Um, and uh, I did find one place where he used it himself in, in a conversation with uh, one of the royal family. Uh, but he uh, predicted that as this new world order came into place, there would be um, some confusion in the old church as this new evolution took place. He didn't leave plans for like a church structure or ordination or liturgy. Um, though he's hardly known today, really in many circles, um, he was very known in the 1800s. His impact has been quite dramatic in the arts, architecture, poetry, even the founding of psychology. Most famously, you've heard of Helen Keller who preached twice at, at Church of the Holy City. Uh, William Blake attended the first gathering of the Swedenborgians in the UK. Um, artists like Hiram Powers and George Innes were inspired by Swedenborg. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote a beautiful essay about the importance of Swedenborg. Edgar Allan Poe, Walt Whitman, Andrew Jackson Davis. Um, there's a long, long list of people that he influenced in that, in that period through his writings. Religious groups, I would say, uh, religions uh, often looked less favorably on it because he was, in a sense, a critique of the Christian church. So uh, it, it seems to me he had more success among artists and among poets and among um, architects, interestingly enough, um, than, it, than in a lot of uh, theologians. Um, And uh, there were some early readers in Germany and England, and they usually met at coffee shops. And many of them were um, slowly, some clergy got interested. And one Anglican minister in the UK uh, named Reverend Hinmarsh um, said, you know, we can't continue in our old churches with these new teachings. We have to create a new church. And so he uh, hammered out the first uh, plans for a new denomination, and it was in England. Other leaders of the time, uh, particularly ministers, said that the new church, because it was an evolution, would take place within church structures so they could stay within their denominations and they could uh, experience the evolution there. They didn't need to create a new religion. So it was a debate, and that debate continues to this day. So the uh, the denomination in the UK and London was crafted really around the, what they knew, the Anglican Church. They used, I think, a lot of the Book of Common Prayer and a lot of the structures in that, though it tended to be more congregational style around the world. In the United States, uh, Francis Bailey, who was a famous publisher, uh, heard um, a Scotsman named James Glenn speak about Swedenborg in 1787, and he started publishing Swedenborg's work to other um, elite readers, including Benjamin Franklin. Uh, 
And so it spread through Philadelphia originally in the United States. Um, George Washington wrote a letter to the pastor of the Baltimore church. We have a copy of that letter here at Church of the Holy City on display. Uh, and uh, we, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson was curious about Swedenborg and invited the pastor of the Baltimore church to preach to Congress. And uh, he did in 1802, he delivered a sermon at the Capitol and it was attended by the president. And then two years later, Thomas Jefferson invited him back uh, to speak before the entire Congress. And Jefferson was impacted and both of those sermons remained in his library. And so throughout the 1800s, churches sprouted up along mainly the East Coast, mainly New England, but there were some in California. And Johnny Appleseed, the famous uh, Disney character was, a, was John Chapman, a Swedenborgian missionary. And most of the Midwest churches all got started uh, in many of them through uh, Johnny Appleseed, who was an early spiritual entrepreneur. He planted trees ahead of the pioneers and um, created eco-friendly communities before it was a thing. Um, it's hard for us to imagine the fame of Swedenborg in that period. I noticed when I was working in Michigan that uh, in studying at the, the capital of Michigan, uh, one of the names for the capital was going to be Swedenborg. He was so popular. The city of Chicago was designed by a Swedenborgian architect with the view of the holy city in Swedenborg's description, Daniel Burnham, and Ohio had the first Swedenborgian college. So in the late 1800s, the Swedenborgian church split into two groups, and I know this always confuses people. Why? How could a small group split into two groups? But they did. The more conservative branch believed that Swedenborg was a third testament of scripture. So they saw him on par. The other group that were a branch of see Swedenborg's insights as influential, but not at the level of scripture. Uh, that other group um, created its really its own community um, right outside of Philadelphia and a philanthropist built well, one of the most beautiful spiritual communities, beautiful cathedrals. It's called Bernathan, and that branch is called the General Church, and our branch is called the General Convention, and it's, it exists to this day, and it's quite active and has Swedenborgian churches all over the United States. The, this branch has a Washington church, uh, which they call it, and it's located in Mitchellville, Maryland, and very often in that branch, people actually live in a community um, around the church and it's very um, more uh, insular. Uh, that branch does not ordain women. And uh, I would say it's anti-gay, it's not gay friendly. They uh, would not ordain me, for example, or rec I don't think they'd recognize my ordination. Um, but a number of the new female members, uh, ministers in our branch actually grew up in the, in the other branch and have come to be ordained and be active in our church. So it's an interesting crossing over. So it looks like, as I looked at the record studying this, it looks like by 1900, the rapid growth of the churches kind of peaked out. I think the division that took place really took a toll. Um, and, uh, but so the Swedenborg church really stopped uh, growing churches uh, in a dramatic way as it had been doing before that. In Washington, DC, the Swedenborgians worshiped at a Swedenborgian temple. Um, and it existed where the Senate Russell Building now stands. It had about 60 members. A fire destroyed the church and forced the group to rent for a while. And eventually, um, at that time, churches were building national churches on 16th Street up from the White House. And the Swedenborgians decided they wanted to build one and pooled their funds to build a DC cathedral, essentially for Swedenborgians. <clears throat> the fundraising never completely materialized. Um, and so, 
This church, Church of the Holy City, is the national church of the Swedenborgian denomination. And it's owned by the a group of national trustees, not the local community. Um, they hold the deed and it's um, an interesting relationship to say the least between the two groups. That, but right now it's a very positive relationship. We work, work very well together. Um, so this church, Church of the Holy City, was built to hold around 300 to 350 people. I think it, at max it probably held uh, over 200. It seems to me from the records, very influential Washingtonians. Um, looking through the church records by the 1960s, there's already articles reporting that the, the space is only being half used. Um, the upstairs chapel was used as a thriving Sunday school. But as church attendance dropped in the United States, um, DC experienced the riots of 1968, where just two streets over 14th Street completely burned down and was guarded by the National Guard. You've seen those images. And so the church, uh, many, there was white flight, but uh, much of Washington was abandoned by um, mainly white uh, Washingtonians who moved to the suburbs. The suburbs blew up. And so um, DC went through a period, uh, which many of you will know of a very high crime and neglect. And so Church of the Holy City, uh, pretty much as a building fell into disrepair. Um, by the 1980s, I uh, just asked Malcolm about this. Uh, he joined the church and he said there were about 30 in the congregation. Um, but by the 2000s, um, the, the, this church was down to five members and the denomination was planning on selling it. Um, this year, we've turned in our record of, of real, you know, honest to good members and we're up to 25. And that's probably the largest size for this church in 40 years. So the Swedenborgian church is small nationally. It probably, uh, our little tiny branch probably only has about 2,500 members. Uh, the other branch probably 5,000 members. Um, what's interesting is that outside of the United States in Africa, the church has its largest numbers. In South Africa alone, it was reported there was 35,000 members. I'm not sure if that's still accurate, but it really took off in Africa, which sort of fits Swedenborg's teachings about Africans having a closer spiritual connection. Um, but there are churches in Australia um, and throughout, really every, every country in the world seems to have a reading group or some sort of group, um, or it did at one time. So that gives you a little bit about the church. It shows how our church fits into the scheme of the denomination. So what does the future of the church look like? Um, well, it's, I don't know is the short answer, but he really, Swedenborg's predictions talks about the Christian church would have to go through this almost wasting away, he says, vastation period uh, to get rid of the false teachings that it held and it would have to be um, almost born anew. And so one of the questions I've asked and many have asked, did the Swedenborgian church make a big mistake by imitating the old failing church when it was, according to Swedenborg, about to decline? And could it be a case of, you know, last one in, first one out? Since our church imitated the old church, might we face the same fate of decline, but faster because we got in at the end? Um, that's possibly true. I can say that, um, that Swedenborg's inter um, interpretation of Christianity that's been preserved through these churches has, play has been a very vital role, in my opinion. And it's one that um, I would say if being raised in a non-Swedenborgian church, it would, it, there was a lot I disagreed with. And it would be very hard for me to say I'm a Christian believing as people taught in that church that if you only, only Christians went to heaven, all non-Christians non went to hell. 
and that other Christians that they didn't particularly agree with also went to hell. Um, I, I couldn't believe in that. Um, the idea that God is um, constantly looking to punish us and um, we should live in fear of that. Um, that doesn't sound like a loving God. So Swedenborg's different view on this, I, I find very important. So I'm glad a church was there to offer that. Um, so uh, it's a real question, you know, what, what would the future look like? Um, I think a lot of young people who are leaving Christianity right now could find our inclusive teachings very unique. And if they knew about it, um, they would be interested. And I think that's our job. But I do think we're carrying a flame for what could be next, and we should be less wed to, you know, that has to be what it was in the past, and seek to be innovators of this new faith coming into the world. I'm going to briefly talk about my own connection to this because a lot of people ask, because the, the name, the Tafel name is well known in the Swedenborgian tradition. Um, and it offers some insights, I think, as to why I find the church valuable. I mentioned there were followers in Germany, and that was one of the, some of the earlier were my ancestors who were professors, pastors, and librarians in uh, southern Germany, primarily Tübingen, and they were they translated a lot of Swedenborg, did a lot of Swedenborg research, and were uh, and created a Swedenborg church in Germany. Um, they came to the United States, and my great great grandfather, his name was Leonard, became a scholar. Um, he taught as a professor. He became ordained late in his life and he served two churches, one in Philadelphia and one in Brooklyn. His son, my great grandfather, Lewis, uh, was a Swedenborgian minister also and he served primarily the Baltimore church. And he was one of the 12 founders of that Swedenborgian Academy that I spoke about that led to a creation of a, a different branch. And he was sort of right in the middle of the debate that led to the split. My grandfather, Leonard, also a Swedenborgian minister, was uh, president of the denomination, and he laid the cornerstone, cornerstone for the most innovative church, uh, innovative new church in the, in the 20th century, which was Wayfair's Chapel in Los Angeles. And uh, it's a glass church uh, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And then my father, who's on the call today celebrating his 94th birthday, tutored me in Swedenborg when I was growing up. So um, he was my spiritual pastor. And I was raised and ordained in the American Baptist Church. That was the local church nearby. So I only transferred my ordination um, maybe 15 years ago to the Swedenborgian Church. Uh, when I was at Divinity School, I took classes at the Swedenborg School in Newton, Massachusetts and, and Harvard. Uh, Divinity gave me credit. And I really thought about getting ordained back then. This is the 80s. But I, in talking to everybody, I thought this church really doesn't have a future. So I didn't want to take a risk. Um, so I stuck with the Baptist Church. And, um, but I'm very, all the time I, I loved the Swedenborg teachings and I, that's what I was always reading. Uh, but I never really imagined I'd be pastor of a church. So I, I share the family history because it's my way of saying this church means a lot to me. The theology um, means a lot to me. It makes sense of the world for me. I don't agree with all of it, but it really does give me insights that I wouldn't get any other way. So that's why I'm uh, so active now in the denomination with this church. What will happen next? Well, here's the deal. If we follow God's guidance, we'll be fine. The, water, the waters could be choppy, but I think that the innovative work we're pioneering here at the church and even in worship, uh, we're trying to create new wineskins for new wine. And I think that's a good thing. I think we shouldn't be wed completely to what we think it should be, but open to what the Lord wants us to do. I don't think it's going to look like what we can imagine right now. Um, if we try to pound the future into our own image, it's not going to work. 
I think we have to be partners with God in unfurling a new evolution in spirituality and check with ourselves to say, are we loving more? Are we working toward justice? If we are, I think it's all good. Uh, I put into the newsletter, there's a book coming out next month called Bridging the Divide about how Christians are, are bridging the divide and they are gonna feature Church of the Holy City for our work on spiritual entrepreneurship. So that's an example where we can have an impact and be useful beyond size. I think we should stay away personally from heavy dogma, um, self-righteousness, judgment. You'll know I don't do a lot of heavy dogma in my sermons or in the dialogue. I don't think it's relevant. I try to make my sermons extremely uh, practical to people's lives, and I think that's what the church should do. Um, and we're called to be kind. You know, we've, we've talked about in our own church, uh, Helen right now, uh, who's going through this difficult challenge, and her neighbor, Dr. Peck, you know, taking her into his home. To me, that's the theology of the church. It really is building community. It's loving the neighbor. That's the future. And we shouldn't get so wrapped up in these theological abstractions. We should get wrapped up in, are we really caring for one another? So, and I'll just, one interesting tidbit. Swedenborg says that as this new church evolves, the new leaders of it will not come from the old church because people in the old church are so blinded by their theology that it will be new leaders will emerge who probably don't have strong religious backgrounds. And I, th I find that absolutely fascinating. I'm curious to see what that means and what comes next. Very interesting. So that's an exciting future of this faith. And I, I think we can play a role in helping in that birthing process. We will if we're useful and good in the world. And thank you all for interest in this and being part of it. Amen. We will have a discussion about this in the dialogue time after the service. Now is the time, if you can, to give to the offering and someone will put that into the chat if you want to link. A lot of you are really are doing that and I really appreciate it. You're keeping us Keeping us, uh, we have to live in the physical world as we try to teach the spiritual world. So I really appreciate that. And um, I want to shift into a moment of prayer. And, uh, and I think most of you know our tradition here is basically if you have a prayer that you'd like to lift up, you just unmute, you say a line or two, you don't have to tell us the whole thing. And uh, we'll all say at home, Lord, hear our prayer to let you know we're praying with you. And I'll say it here for all of us as well. So if you have a prayer that you would like to have lifted up, um, if you could say it uh, at this time, just unmute and you can um, raise your prayer to the Lord. I was uh, wanting to pray for my sister-in-law who is entering hospice. Lord, hear our prayer. I want to say Go, Go ahead. ahead. Go ahead, David. Oh, I'd like to offer a special prayer and blessing for Helen and everybody in the church. Uh, let Helen always know that the Lord is always with her. As he said, he'll never leave or forsake us. And let all worry, anxiety, stress leave her right now in the name of Jesus. And let her angel always be with her. Amen. Lord, hear our prayer. I want to say a prayer for <clears throat> um, 
particularly our new church brothers and sisters there. Lord, hear our prayer. <laughs> enjoyed this episode of Spiritual Resilience Podcast with Reverend Rich Taffel. We invite you to reach out to us with your questions and comments, as well as proposed topics for discussion. Sending you love and light. Till next episode.